Good morning. Hey, if you have a Bible, you can get it. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 6 this morning. Ephesians 6, and let me give you just a little bit more of an update about the video that you just watched. Um, This Christmas, we are partnering with Circle City Relief, and uh, we have the tremendous opportunity to provide uh, gifts for many different families. So you'll see the Christmas trees out in the lobby. They'll have tags that look just like this on them. And the tags uh, correspond to the gift that we're asking our church family to provide. So you can grab one or two or many. We're going for 250 to 300 gifts total. And so we would love for you to grab one of these or a couple of these, get together as a family, pray. You can go shop and buy them. You can order it on Amazon, however best you want to do that, and bring it back. But here's the catch. We're asking you to take these gifts and bring them back without wrapping them. Don't wrap them. Uh, because I love the approach of Matt and Sandy Gay. Matt and Sandy attend our first service here at New Hope. That's how we got connected to them. And one of the things that they do is they provide this store. They set it up like a store, and families can come in. Parents come in, and they shop in a way for their child based on the gifts that we provide, and they get to wrap the gifts for their kids, and they get to write the notes for their kids and give it to them. And it's a beautiful way to allow these families to keep their dignity in the midst of their difficulty. And so we're excited to partner with them, and we want to provide all the gifts that we can. And so grab some tags off the tree on your way out today. Spend some time praying. You can bring them back to the church during the week. You can bring them back next Sunday or the Sunday after, and they'll collect them. If you want to volunteer, volunteer spots for the day of the event are filling up. Uh, They told us this morning that they're filling up rather quickly. Uh, December the 10th, you can scan the QR code on the screen. You can jump on the website Look for ways to get signed up, and you and your family can go down and serve the day of the event as well. Two more quick things. Next Sunday is our Missions Sunday. We'll be highlighting partnerships that we have uh, for gospel work all around the world. Uh, Many of our missionaries will be here in person. We'll get to hear from some of them. We'll have a special time of prayer. L.D. Campbell is going to come and preach for us. That's Ben, our worship minister's grandfather, and he served as the uh, chairman of the board of Johnson University, Johnson Bible College, one of the missions that we've partnered with as well. So we're excited for next Sunday having him here. Last thing, and then I promise we'll get started. If you're interested, uh, look for an email in the coming week to sign up to be a part of New Hope's first annual Turkey Bowl. Uh, So we're going to play some football Thanksgiving morning out here, uh, and it's going to be fun. And we'll just ask you to sign up and come out and participate. It'll be early, 8, 8.30, so you can get back to your families injured uh, to recover. So, (laughs) all right, let's pray together. We'll jump in. Father, thank you for the opportunity for us to get to be the church in so many different ways. I just pray that we're faithful to that. God, I ask that as we turn our attention to your word, that you would speak to us clearly, that we would leave here different than when we arrived. Father, we thank you for your presence. We thank you for your many provisions. And we give our thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. I am always kind of haunted by certain passages of Scripture for a variety of reasons. Uh, Some of them... Uh, leave me with such a deep conviction that it's hard to kind of shake off and you kind of carry yourself with it and you're just kind of like, wow, that is such a vivid teaching about the way that we're called to live. One of those passages for me is found in Matthew chapter 25 and it's when Jesus teaches a parable known as the parable of the talents. Maybe you remember this story. A very wealthy boss is going to be leaving town on an extended trip and he entrusts his business to three of his employees. And he entrusts it to them by entrusting to them money to invest to keep the business going. And so he uh, calls the first employee in and he gives him five talents. And the second one gets two and the third one gets one talent. 
to invest and to uh, keep the business going. Now, a talent, just for your uh, understanding, was a unit of money, but it was a really big one. In that day, uh, a talent was about the equivalent of what they would call 6,000 denarii. And a denarii uh, was the average wage uh, in a year uh, of about 300 denarii. And so you're thinking like, man, this is quite a bit that this guy's giving to them in a talent. If it's the equivalent of 6,000 and only 300 was what an average year's salary was, you're looking at anywhere around 15 to 20 years worth of pay given that day and age. Uh, and he's giving, that's in one talent, he's given five to one, two to another, and one to the third. Another way, in other words, one commentator said he gave him a big bag of gold <laughs> to invest. So the boss gets ready to leave and he takes off on his journey. And when he leaves on his journey, uh, the first guy with the five talents doesn't want to just sit around. And so he gets to work and he's looking for different ways to invest and to maximize the return on his boss's or his master's money. And that's exactly what he does. He turns five talents into ten. The second guy with the two talents feels the same way. I've got two talents and I want to invest this. I don't want to just waste it. And so he gets the two talents and he goes to work and he finds creative ways. He invests the money, doubles the money, and he brings back four talents. And then there's the third guy who was given one talent, one uh, amount of money, and he was given this to do something with, but he was a little bit fearful, didn't want to risk much, and so he buries it and he sits on it. And when his master returns, he gives him back 100% of what was given to him. The master lost no money. The guy didn't make any extra money, but he didn't lose any money either. He gives him back exactly what was given to him, and he returns it to him. But it's the response of the master that gets me. When returned to himself, exactly what he'd given to this employee, he calls him a wicked and lazy servant. Wicked? I mean, he didn't do anything wrong. He was given this money. He didn't waste it on prostitutes and parties. He didn't take it and embezzle it and steal any of it. He didn't disappear and go on some exotic trip and come back and like, I'm sorry, I lost it. I mean, all he did was bury it and then give you back 100%. You didn't even lose a penny. He didn't lose a single penny of his original investment. And yet now this employee is a wicked servant. Man, that's intense. And I think Jesus is teaching us something here. When we sin, when we fall short, a lot of the times it's because of the bad things that we do. But Jesus is teaching us that equally as bad as missing the mark and not engaging in bad behavior is when you are given good opportunities and you waste them as well. It's to be given good things in your life. It's to be given opportunities that aren't always feeling good, but opportunities in your life and to bury them. And to say, this opportunity, I'm just going to bury it because I don't want to do anything with it. And you miss an opportunity to invest that into the kingdom. Right? Think about it. a car that no one ever drives is useless. A dollar nobody ever spends is not helpful. That I love you that you want to say to somebody that you don't say to them and you hold it back and you never say the words. It's kind of a useless phrase at that point. It doesn't help anybody. And in the same way, spiritually, to fail to stretch your life and to invest your life and to develop your life for the fullest potential for God's kingdom is no different than somebody who's guilty of murder. Nobody, somebody who's guilty of an egregious sin that you would look at and say, that's horrible. In the same way, the good things that God has given to us, the opportunities that he's given to us, when they're not invested for his kingdom, it's just as bad. Here's the thing about that. Not every opportunity is comfortable. And so the question for the Christian, for the follower of Jesus, if you're a disciple of Jesus, the question to wrestle with is, 
Not only have I allowed the Holy Spirit to help me overcome the bad things that I have done and the bad things that I struggle with, but am I also taking opportunities to do the good for the kingdom, to take this thing that I have and invest it for his kingdom? And some of those things that we have the opportunity to invest are not comfortable and good. Sometimes the greatest investment we can make to the furthering of the gospel is our suffering, our pain, our discomfort. And while this is a principle throughout your entire Bible, I don't think there's a better case study than the author of the person who wrote the letter that we're coming to a conclusion studying today, the Apostle Paul. Do you remember when the Apostle Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus? That first encounter, Jesus says something about Paul's life that is pretty intriguing. He says these words in Acts chapter 9. He's talking to Ananias, the one who had baptized Paul into Christ, and he says these words. The Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. His pain, his suffering will magnify my name. His pain will be an offering to bring glory to God. John Piper describes Paul's life this way when he says these words. Paul never knew where the next blow was going to come from. Every day he risked his life for the cause of God. The roads weren't safe. The rivers weren't safe. His own people, the Jews, weren't safe. The Gentiles weren't safe. The cities weren't safe. The wilderness wasn't safe. The sea wasn't safe. Even the so-called Christian brothers weren't safe. Safety was a mirage. It simply did not exist for the Apostle Paul. Comfort and safety didn't work. And Paul's able to live this type of life because he had a different lens on. He saw every element of his life different than the rest of the world did. He was able to see his difficulty and pain as opportunity rather than a shortcoming. And here's why we're talking about this today. If you're a follower of Jesus, you cannot avoid suffering. We spend a lot of our time and our money and our planning in an effort to create comfort and prevent harm. And that's not all bad. That's not all a bad thing. But you are under an illusion if you think that as a follower of Jesus, you will not suffer in this life. And Paul's life is like a case study. My favorite example from Paul's life is the relationship that he shared with the church in the town called Philippi. Now, many of you have heard this before, but it is my favorite illustration from his life. Philippi was a town that was ruled by Roman governance. Most of the people that lived there were Roman citizens. In fact, most of the people that set up shop and lived in this town called Philippi were retired Roman soldiers. They just decided, hey, we're done serving. We're going to live in this town. Paul and his buddy Silas show up and the church gets planted there. As the church gets up and going, Paul and Silas spend some time with these people trying to teach them about what it means to follow Jesus. Like, hey, here's what it looks like when you want to follow Jesus. Here's what Jesus taught. And he's teaching them how he's the fulfillment of everything that you've read about in your scriptures for them would have been our Old Testament. As this is going, he's spending most of his days with them. As he's walking down the street one day, there's this really annoying little girl who's demon-possessed who keeps bugging him. Now, it's a true demon possession, not the type of annoyance that you would say, oh yeah, most little girls, right? Like, no. Like this nagging feeling that he was getting, she had a demon and this demon gave her the ability to predict the future. And some greedy, horrible people took advantage of her. They exploited her for that ability and they were making money off of charging people to come in and be in her presence and then learn something about their future. 
As she's nagging Paul, and you read about this in Acts chapter 16, as he's walking down the street, he casts the demon out of her, freeing her from that captivity. And these guys that had kept her in oppression weren't happy about it. And so they turn Paul and Silas over to the authorities. And this is where it gets interesting. Paul and Silas are faced with these Roman authorities, and they're beaten. Now, we read that, and we think, yeah, okay, Paul got beat. Let's move on. Like, beaten within an inch of their life. I mean, flogged, open wounds, bleeding, all kinds of pain. And then they take them in that condition and they put them down into the bottom of a Roman dungeon prison. And in those prisons, they would have been chained in awkward positions that bars that went from the ceiling to the floor, they would have chained their body in awkward positions so as to maximize the amount of tension on the joints hoping to dislocate something. On top of that, with these open wounds in this dirty prison, awkwardly chained in positions, creating tension on their body, they would have chained Paul's head to the wall so that he couldn't fall asleep. And this is no little amount of suffering. An earthquake happens. And it kind of sets it where they can get out of there. Like, hey, maybe now's the time to run. Like, get out of here because this is horrible. The Roman guard who was overseeing that prison understood that if his prisoners did get free, even if there was some sort of an earthquake, that he was going to be tortured and thrown in prison and ultimately killed because of it. And so rather than facing that type of punishment, he was prepared to take his own life when Paul yelled out and said, don't do it. Don't kill yourself. We're still here. None of us have left. And Paul takes that opportunity to share the gospel with this prison guard and then goes into his home and ends up baptizing his entire family in the middle of the night into Christ because of it. But here's the catch. Paul didn't have to go through any of that. None of it. You see, the Bible tells us that the Apostle Paul was a Roman citizen himself. Roman citizens had what's called due process. You understand this. You're innocent until you're proven guilty. All Paul had to do to these Roman people that wanted the authorities that wanted to punish him, beat him and throw him into this prison was to tell him I'm a Roman citizen and they wouldn't have touched him. He would have had to go through a process before having any kind of a punishment. So why did he do it? Why did the apostle Paul endure such a beating? Well, remember, he's sitting among a bunch of retired soldiers whose allegiance to Rome was very strong, trying to teach them that heaven's citizenship was far more important than Rome's. And given the first opportunity to use the advantage of his Roman citizenship in front of them would have been detrimental to their maturity. And so he takes the beating. He gets thrown into the prison. And he models for them what it looks like to follow the Lord Jesus over and above every other allegiance that you have in life. And as a result of that pain and suffering, a prison guard and his entire family come to know Christ. And 2,000 years later, we still tell that story. So the Apostle Paul could then turn around and write a letter to this church in Philippi where he would say these words in chapter 1. I want you to know, brothers, brothers and sisters, that what happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the entire palace guard and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ, that my suffering has a purpose. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Here's the point. The Apostle Paul's life was a testimony that in the midst of our suffering, if we refuse to just bury it and instead take our darkest moments and invest them into his kingdom, God will take that and we will be given many opportunities to proclaim the goodness of our God. Piper includes in the bottom part of that quote I started a moment ago with these words, the Christian life is a call to risk. You either live with risk or you waste your life. We must be ready to suffer 
That's not fun to preach. The Christian life is one where we risk it. We say, look, I don't want to go through this. I don't want to endure what I'm having to walk through, but not my will, but your will be done. God, I don't want this to be the case, but because it is the case, I want to give this as an offering to you. This is what we learn as we close out Ephesians. We've been studying Ephesians since the first Sunday in January. And this is our last Sunday studying in Ephesians. And as the letter comes to a close, this is the lesson that we learn from the Apostle Paul. Long intro, but this is the lesson we learn as he closes out this letter to a group of people that he loved deeply. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's word as we finish our study of Ephesians? Beginning in chapter 6, verse 19. Pray also for me, Paul writes, that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Tychicus, the dear, my dear brother and faithful servant in the Lord, will tell you everything so that you also may know how I am doing and what I am doing. I'm sending him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage you. Peace to the brothers and sisters in love with faith from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. This is God's word. You can be seated. Paul writes these words from prison. This is what we, one of the letters we commonly call the prison epistles. Paul is in prison while he's writing to the church in Ephesus. And he's awaiting a trial that he doesn't know how it's going to turn out. And it's a trial that threatens his life. It's a trial that would determine how Christians were going to be treated by the Roman authorities moving forward. And so, as he instructed the Christians in Ephesus, last week we looked at this, he said, hey, your prayer life is an ongoing conversation with God. You're just inviting God to be a part of every single part of your day at all times. You're just continuing this conversation with him as you pray. So he says, as you put on the armor of God, do so while praying. As you put on that helmet of salvation, make sure you're also just praying, you're just talking to God inviting him into the everyday part of your life. And now Paul says, while you're continuing to praise, you just go about your normal activities in life. Would you pray also for me? Now, just that request alone is fascinating to me. The apostle Paul asks the church to pray for him, which tells me that Paul saw himself on equal ground with the rest of the church. He's one of the followers of Jesus. He's a brother in Christ to this church family. We kind of mix that up a little bit when we have churches that where we sit in chairs and we stare and the stage is elevated and all of a sudden we begin to look at pastor or preacher in a certain way and that's just not the case. A more, uh, a, a more normal setting would be we're just on level playing ground. We're all on the same level following after Jesus and Paul says, I want you to pray for me too. I pray for you, but would you also pray for me? As you're going about this ongoing conversation that you're having with God, would you remember me in your prayers as well? The second part of that, though, is notice this, that the Apostle Paul in, Acts, in, in Philippi, or Philippians, Acts, everywhere, Ephesians 6, the Apostle Paul does not ask for them to pray that he would be released from prison. And I find that fascinating. He does not say, hey, while you're praying for me, would you remember to pray that I could get out of here? Now, if I were writing a letter to you, New Hope, my church family, and I was in prison, one of the first lines you would read in my letter would be, could you pray that I could get out of here? (laughs) I don't want to be here. This is horrible. And yet Paul doesn't make that request. It doesn't mean that he didn't want that, but he saw his suffering in a different way. And it was fascinating. Brings us to a couple lessons. The first one is this. Paul always saw suffering as an opportunity to live out and proclaim the gospel. 
Always. Every single time. And here's what that does not mean. It does not mean that Paul was seeking ways to suffer. He was not some like attention-seeking martyr. Like, woe is me. Life is so hard. I'm so busy. It's so hard. It's so difficult. Like, would you just feel bad for me, please? Like, look at what I'm having to go through. Like, he didn't do that. But when suffering arrived, he was ready. When he was going to suffer, he was ready to make sure that his suffering wasn't something that he buried, but something he invested into the kingdom of God as an offering to God. I don't want this to be the case, God, but not my will, but your will be done. Let somebody hear the good news of the gospel because of what I'm having to go through. Here's the other thing it does not mean. It does not mean that he didn't actually struggle while suffering. He wasn't just some fake Christian who pretended to enjoy all these horrible things that were happening to him. In fact, it's really hard for me to read 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and not believe that in the midst of all of those different trials that Paul didn't somewhere wrestle with some doubt. I'm like, why am I going through this? Like, why? I know you said that I'm going to suffer for your namesake, but is there ever a breather? Like, can I just get a day off? Why do I have to endure this? But Paul was human. Nowhere in the text do we read that Paul wasn't a human being. In fact, in Romans chapter 7, Paul says that I've had these real big spiritual struggles in my life. And I think it's fair for us to say in the midst of the suffering, he also struggled. But here's what it does mean. It does mean that even though struggling with maybe doubt and physical and emotional pain and difficulty, the apostle Paul still looked to God and went from the why to the how. And here's what I mean by that. When we go through a hard time, when you lose a loved one, when you're unjustly accused of something, when you've made poor choices and you're living in the midst of those consequences, It's oftentimes appropriate, in fact, most of the time it's appropriate to start with the why. Why is this happening? It's normal in grief, normal in pain to say, why? Like, why do I have to go through this? Why do I have to endure this? That's a normal reaction, and you should do that. But for the Christian, because of what God's doing in our lives, we go from the why to the how, meaning I seek out why it's happening. I I, want to know. It's just natural. I want to know why this is happening to me. But sometimes you get the answer and sometimes you don't. And either way, you shift from the why to the how. So how, God, are you going to use this? Even if I don't know why it's happening to me, how are you going to use this for your glory? Like, how could God take my pain and suffering? How could God take this difficulty that I'm walking through and bring something beautiful and good from it? This is Paul's prayer quest. Would you pray? Look at what he says there in, in, in Ephesians 6, 19 and 20. He says, would you pray that when I need it the most, I'd speak boldly the gospel? Would you pray that in the middle of my pain, when God opens a door for me to be able to tell someone about Jesus, that the words would be there? Would you pray that I would yield myself so much to the Holy Spirit that instead of fighting against all the bad that's happening to me, I would try to invest it and instead be able to proclaim the truth that God is good because of what he's done for us in Jesus? I mean, he's reminding us of the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 10. Here's what Jesus said. But when they arrest you, don't worry about what to say and how you're going to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. This is what Paul is asking the Ephesian church to pray for him. That when I speak up, it will not be just me speaking, but the Holy Spirit giving me the words that I need to proclaim the truth of the gospel. See, Paul knows that at some point his suffering, if he keeps the right perspective, will lead to an opportunity to tell somebody about Jesus. And his response to life's difficulty was to see that 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 opportunity would come and that in the middle of it, the gospel would be proclaimed. 
And if suffering leads other people to hearing the truth of Jesus, Paul said, I'm willing to suffer then. Here's the other thing it tells us, Ephesians chapter 6, that every time Paul went through anything, he was always looking for a way to encourage someone else. And I love this. See, the more you pray, friends, the more you spend time with God, like genuinely just having this open conversation with him, what happens is he begins to shape and mold you. And it's really, really hard to explain. But you go from selfish to selfless. You just do. You see, a lot of times our faith can be about only what we know. So I can study the Bible and I can have a good theology of suffering and I can understand all of the right answers, but I spend no time with God. I never commune with him and I never spend time talking to him. So that transformation's not really happening. It's just a bunch of knowledge, but no heart change. But as I begin to spend time with God, he begins to change the very way that I operate. And in the middle of our darkest moments, we're looking for a way to encourage someone else. I don't know how to explain it to you other than if you've been on the receiving end of it. As a pastor in this church, I just, I, there's been a lot of people that have suffered so well in our congregation. It's unbelievable. And I'll go and sit with these families that have gone through tremendous difficulty and pain. And they're more concerned with how I'm doing and how my family's doing than their, pre, their current circumstances. And I'm blown away. On the worst day of your life, why are you thinking about me? And it's because as we're transformed by the gospel, we're given a different perspective on all of our pain. You're looking for an opportunity to invest that difficulty into the kingdom, making it about other people, making it about the proclamation of the gospel, not being fake. You wrestle with the why, you go through the grieving process, and then that transformation begins to take place. And you go from the why to the how. How, God, will you use this pain that I'm walking through for your glory? This is the beauty of it. So he sends Tychicus, my dear brother, right? It literally means my faithful, dear friend. I'm sending him to you. And why did he do that? Why would he send Tychicus? Well, because he's a faithful, dear friend, and he sends him to be an encouragement in two ways. I want to tell you how Paul's doing. I spent time with Paul. I just want to relate. But also it says to be an encouragement to you. In the same way that we just read in Philippians 1, Paul was an encouragement to the church in Philippi. Remember the words in Philippians 1 just a few seconds ago when we read it. Paul said that my suffering has given courage to every other Christian that's watching me go through this because I'm going through it the way that God wants me to. Right? It's, it's given this boldness to these other believers to speak up and to endure. In the same way, Paul sends Tychicus because he knows he's going to Ephesus where it's really hard to follow Jesus faithfully. And there's a lot of pain and suffering that comes with being a faithful Christian. And Tychicus shows up and he says, hey, you can do it. You can get through this. God will use whatever you're walking through for his glory. You're going to get through this. You got to keep going. Because when you're walking through suffering alone, it gets really, really hard to see how it could possibly be redeemed for good until Tychicus shows up. And he begins to remind you that for the Christian, there's always purpose in our pain. And God will always bring good from it. So as we close out this study of Ephesians, let me remind you that Paul's concern for this church is that they would endure. You fast forward in your New Testament to Revelation chapter 2, and Jesus himself has a message for this very same congregation. We started the sermon series in Revelation 2 a lot of months ago. And if you remember the message that Jesus had for the church in Ephesus, he said to them, I see all the good that you're doing. You're a very active church. 
you're serving, you're caring. For us, he would say something like this. I love the Circle City Relief thing. You're giving gifts to people that need it. I love that you partner with all these missions and you're doing so many good things, but you've forgotten this thing. You're not in love with me anymore. We don't talk anymore. You don't have an ongoing conversation with me anymore. It's just a bunch of stuff that you go and do. You're just trying to achieve, but I don't know you like I used to know you. Then he says, if you're not careful, that gap will widen and your church will die. He says, but to the one who overcomes, meaning the one who makes sure that he keeps the main thing, the main thing, this intimate connection to Jesus, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. It was a warning to them. And can I remind you, church, that there is no church in Ephesus today. They didn't listen. We are only two generations away from complete disobedience if we lose sight of the fact that God wants to know us. And in Ephesus, it didn't end well. So as we close out, let me ask you two questions that maybe you can wrestle with a little bit. Because I'm afraid. Like, look, when we leave here, when we leave this place, okay, last week we had a very high attendance at our church. And one of the thoughts that comes to my mind as I'm studying this is this. Like, it's impossible to think that we would get between here and Christmas or here and next year and someone in our church doesn't walk through tragedy. Someone doesn't walk through heartbreak, heartache, difficulty, that someone doesn't have to go through pain and suffering, it's impossible with this many people in our church. And so the question isn't, will I walk through difficulty? It's, will I be ready when the storm comes to not bury my pain and hope that it just goes away, but instead take it and say, yes, I've wrestled with it, but God, how do you want to use this? And so let me ask you this question. Is God currently, right now, entrusting to you a season of suffering? Scary. Like, it, like, like, sincerely, it's scary because you're like, are, are you preparing yourself? Like, are you preaching a message that you're going to have to live out? I don't know. But I do know this, that he wants to take our pain and bring something good from it. God hates that you would suffer. He hates that you're going through pain, but he wants to take it and bring good from it. And so do you have the right perspective when the storm arrives to say, God, I don't want to go through this. Like, I wish this wasn't the case. Take a chapter out of the life of your master, Jesus, who said, I don't want this. If there's any other way, I don't want to go through this. I don't, I don't want to feel this. I don't want this pain. Like, I don't, I don't like this. But not my will, but your will be done. I've prayed the first part of that prayer a lot in my life. God, I don't, I don't want this, man. I don't want to go through this. And I've buried way too many opportunities ignoring the second part. But not my will be yours. If you, if one person could hear the good news of Jesus because of what I have to go through, here am I. Here am I, send me. Second question is this. Is God currently calling you to be a gospel-centered encouragement to someone else? I'll answer for you. Yes, he is. Because you might have a brother or sister in Christ who's getting ready to or currently is walking through pain and difficulty and it begins to feel lonely and they begin to lose track of the purpose that God might have in the midst of it and they need their ticket kiss to show up. Let me remind you, friend, you can get through this. You're not alone. And oftentimes we take the encouragement we want to offer to somebody else and we bury it and we think, well, God, I had the good intention. I didn't really do anything wrong. And he's like, but you had an opportunity 
to take that feeling you had to go up to that brother or sister in Christ and say that good thing that you were going to say and stop burying it and instead invest it into their life for the sake of God's glory. So the question is, will you? Will you stop holding back? Be the encouragement that he's calling you to be to one another. And the more selfless you live, the more you will realize there is always a purpose in your pain. And every day you wake up, God's got a plan for your life. So as we close out Ephesians, let me just say this. May we suffer well. Scary. But may we suffer well and be the encouragement that he's calling us to be. Let's pray. God, it's a scary prayer to ask for the strength to suffer well for your glory. But God, you've been so good to us. And it's so easy for us in the midst of difficulty and pain and trial to make things all about us, to suffer selfishly. And we want to suffer selflessly. God, would you help us to echo that full prayer? Father, we, if there's any other way, we want out, but not our will, but yours. And God, would you help us, as you put people on our heart and mind, to be an encouragement? And would you use our encouragement for something bigger than simply feeling good about ourselves? Would you help us to entrust our encouraging words to be the fuel that helps somebody endure their suffering and their pain? Would you help us to be a part of your plan to keep people going in the midst of their hard times? May we offer our whole lives, the good and the bad, to you. And we ask you for this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.